right. Uh, good morning, everyone. Is it too booming? Okay. Uh, good morning, everyone. And uh, so we come to the final message of the whole Council of God. Of course, I'm aware of the fact that there is one more next week. But that's going to be a summary of the entire whole Council of God that we did for the last about one and a half years, two years maybe. Uh, so we come to the last portion of it, the book of Revelation, chapters 13 through 22. Uh, I have a request for you this morning. I want you all to give me our extra undivided attention. What is that? Extra undivided attention, right? I know you always give me, all of us standing here, you always give all of us standing here undivided attention, but an extra bit of it is required this morning because of the nature of the book, right? Uh, it's full of astonishing visions and imagery, and we must try to understand it as much as we can under the grace of God. So I'm just waiting for the slides to come up. Yes, and let's just pray that uh, the technology cooperates as well and uh, we'll be able to understand the rest of the book. Okay, so we'll have to put our thinking caps on for about 45 minutes, for the next 45 minutes. And uh, this is tough, but this is a book that has been given to us as the Word of God. So we can understand it. So I want to begin with this encouragement that this is a book given to us as God's Word. So children can understand it, adults can understand it. All of us have been given the ability to understand it because we have the indwelling spirit to help us understand it, right? Okay, so let's begin this morning's message. About a generation ago, the great preacher Ray Stedman, he put it this way. He said, all voices agree together, both secular and sacred alike. All voices agree together, both secular and sacred alike, that we are coming to an unprecedented time of trouble in the world. And we shall never again see anything that could be regarded as normal. We are coming to an unprecedented time of trouble in the world, and we shall never again see anything that could be regarded as normal. This was about a generation ago. Ray Stedman made this comment. And I want to begin this morning's sermon by saying that every part of the statement seems to be true, especially in light of what's happening in the world today, and also what the Bible says will happen in the future. When we study the book of Revelation with this background in mind, especially the statement that I read out for us this morning, when we study the book of Revelation, we are for the most part looking at an unprecedented time of trouble that the Bible calls as the tribulation period. So chapter 6 all the way through 19, it deals with this period called the tribulation period, also called the 70th week of Daniel, also called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's also called the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, right? We saw all of that. So when we are looking at the book of Revelation, the large part of it is talking about the tribulation period, chapter 6 through 19. And so that is going to come upon the whole world in the last few years leading up to the return of Christ, when he returns and sets up the kingdom, in the last few years leading up to the return of Christ, there is going to be unprecedented trouble and unprecedented sorrow that is coming upon the whole world. So that's what we'll be looking at. What did we study last week? Let me just recap for us in two minutes quickly. 
and then we will get to chapter 12 and then we'll move forward. For us to understand chapter 13, I'll have to recap for you in a little detail chapter 12, so let's do that. But what did we study last week? We saw that, once again, we saw that chapter 6 through 19 cover for us the seven-year tribulation period. And we saw three series of judgments that are going to be poured out on the earth until the wrath of God is finished with the last bowl judgment. So there are three series of judgments. In chapter 6, we see the seven seals. In chapters 8 and 9, we see the seven trumpets. And then in chapter 16, we see the seven bowls. Chapter 6, seven seals. Chapters 8 and 9, seven trumpets. And uh, chapter 16, seven bowl judgments. And listen to me very carefully, please. I want to repeat what I said last time. These judgments form the chronological backbone of the book. These judgments form the chronological backbone of the book. And they follow one another sequentially. So the second seal comes after the first seal. The third seal comes after the second seal. The trumpets come after the seals. And the bowls come after the trumpets. So there's a sequential uh, progression of the judgments that is happening in the book of Revelation. So these judgments, the seven, so seven judgments in three series, seven seals, seven trumpets and seven bowls, they form the chronological backbone or the framework of the entire book of Revelation. So when you look at these judgments, you're progressing from the beginning of tribulation until the end of tribulation by the time you reach the seventh bowl. By the time the seventh bowl is poured out, so you have chronologically progressed through the book of through through the period of tribulation to the time of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a chronology. That's one thing that I wanted to mention. The second thing is that if the judgments are only mentioned in chapter six, eight, and nine, and chapter sixteen, what about the remaining chapters? Hear me, please. The remaining chapters give us vital, significant important information about the key players, key events, and key circumstances in the drama of the end time events. They don't necessarily progress the chronology further, but they give us explanatory details, other information needed for us to understand what's happening during the tribulation period, right? But what moves the chronology forward in the book of Revelation are these judgments that I'm talking about or the Bible talks about. Right? So the seven seals, seven trumpets, and the seven bowls, they are the chronological backbone of the book. As you move from one seal to the other, one trumpet to the other, one bowl to the other, you're moving from the beginning of tribulation towards the end of tribulation when the wrath of God is quenched as he pours out his wrath upon all the wicked, the earth dwellers. Yes? Clear so far? Okay. So the other chapters, once again, give us what we need to understand and what else is happening, a pictorial representation of the key players and uh, key events and key circumstances in the drama of the end time events. All right. Sometimes these chapters do it from the standpoint of heaven. At other times, some sections of the book do it from the standpoint of the earth. How does it look from the earthly point of view and how does it look from the heavenly point of view? That's what the extra chapters are doing. Now, if we understand this and we go back and read the book of Revelation, we can get a better hang of the book. So there is a chronological progression from the seals to the trumpets to the bowls, from the seals to the trumpets to the bowls. So that's what we see here. The seals begin 
the, the tribulation period. There are six seals here. Then there's a seventh seal poured out, and towards the early part of it, come out of the seventh seal, seven trumpet judgments, right? And they cover almost the entirety of the second part of the tribulation period, which is the last three and a half years. And then towards very close to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the seven bowls poured out for us in quick succession, which are included in the seventh trumpet. All right, so let's now come to the seventh trumpet. Turn with me, please, to chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. I want you all to keep your Bibles open, please. Otherwise, it's difficult for us to follow, and especially if you haven't read the book of Revelation in a while, it's even more difficult to follow. So please open the Bible to chapter 11, and we look at the second, seventh trumpet in verses 11 through 15. Sorry, 15 through 19. Chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. So the seventh trumpet is in chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. And when the seventh trumpet is blown, there's a hallelujah chorus that resounds. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So we are right there, says John. We are right there in the kingdom. We are almost there. But John is asked to wait. And John is asked to wait because in chapter 10, he was told that he is going to have to prophesy again. He is going to have to prophesy again. What does he have to prophesy further? He has to prophesy the remaining contents of the book, which is from chapter 12 all the way through chapter 22. So he is going to prophesy again. That is what we have in chapters 12 all the way through 22. And I want to say this as we begin uh, to look at chapters 12 through 22 today. I want to say that the remaining part of the book, which is the second section of the book, is much more burdensome and much more tough to understand than what has been prophesied by John so far in the first 11 chapters. So the next series of judgments are the seven bold judgments described for us in chapter 16. These are the final set of judgments that will be poured out on the earth and that will finish the wrath of God. But before the seven bowls of God's wrath come into the picture, there is an explanatory interlude that is given. Look at this. Before the seven bowls come into the picture, there's an interlude here in chapters 12 through 15. The bowls come in chapter 16, but chapters 12 through 15, there's an explanatory interlude as we call it, and I'll explain that. It takes us back to the initial rebellion of Satan. Hear me please very carefully. What are chapters 12 through 15 doing here? They are telling us, by taking us back to the initial rebellion of Satan, remember when Satan fell from heaven and all the angels who followed him were thrown, into the, uh, thrown onto the earth? So it takes us right back to the initial rebellion of Satan and moves us forward to the continuous impact of that initial rebellion throughout the history of mankind. Because Satan fell initially, it has had a great impact throughout the history of mankind. Uh, a continuous impact throughout the history of mankind because he has always been in a state of rebellion against God. So chapter 12 actually takes us back to the initial rebellion and moves forward to the continuous impact of that rebellion throughout human history. And in particular, it details for us how that rebellion by Satan is going to emerge and show up in the last few years leading up to the return of Christ. Get the point? 
It takes us back to the initial rebellion, shows us what happened throughout the history of mankind in a small picture, and then takes us forward to the last few years before the return of Christ and shows how that rebellion by Satan is going to emerge in the last few years. I hope it's clear. So that's what these chapters are doing. So turn with me to chapter 12 now, please. Chapter 12. Chapter 12, John is shown a great sign in heaven. And here is that sign. Uh, this is the best pictorial representation I could get. Uh, so let's try and understand this. Chapter 12, John is shown a great sign in heaven. What is that sign? There's a woman clothed with the sun. A woman is clothed with the sun and she's standing on the moon. Under her feet, there is a moon. She also has on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was pregnant and she was wailing in birth pains. And then all of a sudden, John is also shown another great sign in heaven. And that's a great dragon that he sees in heaven, a great red dragon. Red, is, uh, red shows his murderous intent. And so there's a great red dragon that he sees with seven heads, ten horns. He has seven heads and ten horns. Okay? And there are seven diadems, one on each head. Seven diadems, one on each head. And all of a sudden, John also sees that he has a huge tail and his tail sweeps one third of the stars down to the earth and he casts them to the earth. And the dragon is waiting and ready for the woman to give birth so that he could take the child and devour the child and murder the child. And all of a sudden you see that the woman gives birth to a child and the child has a miraculous escape. He's taken up to the throne of God and Satan can't do anything to him because he's taken into the very presence of God. So what does Satan do now? He wanted to harm the child. He couldn't do it. So he has the woman to left, woman left to chase and, and to, and to uh, go and harm her. And as he's about to do that, the woman escapes into the wilderness where she is nourished by God. And John is very clear about this. For 1,260 days, she's nourished by God for 1,260 days. So this is the first episode of that vision. What does that mean? Listen, please. For various reasons, I believe that the woman represents national Israel and the great red dragon is a picture of Satan and the male child who was born is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the Messiah. So the woman represents national Israel and the great red dragon is a picture of Satan and the male child who was born to that woman is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the Messiah. And just as a woman feels the pains of childbirth, so did the nation of Israel feel those kind of pains in preparation for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the cause of these pains, in part, was due to the persecution that was inspired by Satan to stop the childbirth. There was a lot of persecution in Israel that was happening to the nation before the first coming of Christ. This is Satan's effort to stop the birth of the child and destroy the nation. But that didn't happen under God's grace. And Israel was in travail at the first coming of Christ. Now hear me please. By the time John was writing this, the first coming of Christ was already past. It had already happened. So the point is, this heavenly enactment is a vision of what already happened in the past. 
what we see in the first episode of this vision is something that already happened in the past. It's a historical event. In the same way, the other parts of the vision are an enactment of the future. Just like how this episode is an enactment of the past, the other parts of the vision are an enactment of the future, which we'll be looking at now. Let's see what's happening. Okay. We saw that the great red dragon had how many heads? Seven heads. And how many horns? Ten horns. How many diadems? Seven diadems. Right? So seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems. The seven heads, listen please, the seven heads represent for us seven consecutive world empires. Seven heads represent seven consecutive world empires. Just hold the thought. I'll tell you what they, what they are in, in the future slides, in, in the further slides that we have. So the seven heads represent seven consecutive world empires. The diadems indicate that when John was writing the book of Revelation, actually, those seven kingdoms were running their course. The diadems indicate that when John was writing the book of Revelation, they were still running their course. The ten horns are the ten kingdoms that belong to the seventh empire. The ten horns are ten small kingdoms that belong to the seventh empire. For the moment, just, just understand this and we'll move forward and we'll understand it further. So, let's just recap for a moment, please. Seven heads are seven, seven world empires, consecutive world empires, right? The seventh world empire, the last world empire, has under it, or as part of it, ten kingdoms. Okay, so ten kingdoms formed together to form the last world empire. And these diadems just tell us that by the time John was writing it, those kingdoms were in the process of running their course. That's all it means, okay? So we'll move forward and then we'll understand it further. Look at verse 4, please. The, the first part of verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to the earth. So there is a war that's happening in heaven here, which happened in the past, much before the birth of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the war resulted in the casting of Satan and all of his angels down to the earth. Ever since then, Satan always had evil intentions towards the unborn child. And therefore, you see that throughout the Old Testament history, he tried to harm the people of God so that the birth of the Messiah would not happen. But even after the child is born, he didn't relent. You see Herod going and trying to harm the child and even in killing the children of Bethlehem. And also, a few other events during the earthly life of the Lord Jesus Christ tell us that this rebellion clearly exists. He wants to destroy that woman's child. The most direct attempt to destroy him is in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we know what happened three days later. Now, this vision passes over several events of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it comes directly to the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ ascends into heaven, and he goes and sits at the very right hand of God, into the presence of God, and Satan has no further access to him. And therefore, he is forced to redirect his animosity from the male child towards the nation. That's the woman. And he redirects all of his animosity once again towards the woman. And the woman is the only one who's left for him to attack. So she flees into the wilderness. She flees into the wilderness. Now listen to me very carefully, please. In what verse is that escape mentioned? 
in verse 6, right? That the escape of the woman into the wilderness is mentioned in verse 6. Chronologically, it comes after the warfare that is described for us in verses 7 through 12. So there is a second warfare that happens between Michael and the angels in verses 7 through 12. And the escape of the woman comes chronologically after that. Okay? And the escape is described to us in much detail in verses 13 through 17. That's how the language works. So I'm just giving you the chronology of it. So what is mentioned as an escape by the woman into the wilderness in verse 6 chronologically comes after the warfare of Michael and the angels in, chapter, in verses 12 through 17. Sorry, 7 through 12. And then uh, you have the escape of the woman that receives a more detailed treatment in verses 13 through 17. Now, in verses 7 through 12, we see that there is a warfare that is taking place in heaven. Michael and his angels defeat the dragon and his angels and they throw them down to the earth. Now this happens, now listen very carefully please, this happens, this war that we're talking about is a future war that happens right at the midpoint of tribulation, which is, the right, which is right at the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel. So the 1260 days that the woman would be nurtured for is the last leg or the last section of the tribulation or the second part of the tribulation period, which is three and a half years. So the woman would be nurtured for a time of three and a half years or 1260 days, which is the last half of the tribulation period. If you remember, this is also the time where the two witnesses are ministering in chapter 11 and verse 3. Remember the two witnesses come out and they start ministering. So they also minister during the same time, uh, which is the last uh, part of the last week of the book of Daniel, the 70th week of Daniel. So the flight of Israel to a place of safety takes place in the midpoint of tribulation. And Israel, in the first part of the tribulation period, the first section of it, they will experience a relatively peaceful time because the Antichrist makes a treaty with them. It's in the second part that they will have to flee, uh, and that's the time during which the two witnesses are also going and ministering. We, we compare this with Daniel chapter 9, it, it matches quite well. If you match this with what the Lord Jesus Christ said in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus also spoke of a flight by the Jews in the midpoint or at the midpoint of the tribulation period. He called it the abomination that causes desolation, isn't it? Look at what Jesus said in verses 15 through 21 of Matthew 24. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go, not go down to take waters in his house. And let the one who is on the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been seen from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. Okay, so there's a flight of Israel in the second part of the tribulation period. However, in spite of his best valiant efforts, the dragon will not be able to reach the woman. So the war here that is being talked about between Michael and the angels is, the, 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 Michael and Satan and his angels is an end time event occurring midway through Daniel's 70th week or the seven year tribulation period. 
So during this time, Satan's total energies will be concentrated against God and anything that belongs to God, especially the nation of Israel. So this explains the severity of the punishment during the second part of the tribulation period that the Lord Jesus Christ called the Great Tribulation. There is going to be a severity of tribulation and persecution that's going to happen for the last section uh, of the tribulation period, which is called the Great Tribulation or the last section of three and a half years. Look at chapter 12, verse 12 of Revelation. It says there's only a little time left for Satan after he leaves heaven. That agrees with the three and a half years that we've been talking about as a last section of the tribulation period. And Jesus speaking about this, he said the same thing in verses 21 and 22 of Matthew 24. He said this, for then there will be, do I have it? Oh yeah, here. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So the 1,260 days are times, times, half a time, and uh, three and a half years, and all those things are talking about the second half of the tribulation period, or the second half of the 70th week of Daniel, okay? So all these numbers refer to the second half of the tribulation period, where there's going to be a great persecution, especially for Israel. Now we'll come back to this. In verses 13 through 17, we see another part of the vision in chapter 12. Look at that, please. Seeing that the red dragon has been thrown down to the earth, he pursues the woman. And this is the explanation of her escape and flight. So the woman, uh, who is a symbol of national Israel, she takes on two wings, two wings of the eagle, and she flies away to a place of safety. Now, that is a symbolism for God's miraculous protection and deliverance of the nation of Israel during the Great Tribulation period. How is that going to happen? It's just a matter of spe speculation. We don't know. We'll have to watch it from heaven when it actually happens. But the fact of the matter is God has miraculously delivered the nation in the past. He's going to miraculously deliver the nation in the future as well, which is symbolized as two eagles' wings that are going to take the woman away into a time of safety. And she's going to be nourished for what? A time and times and half a time, which is three and a half years. So then the dragon becomes very furious and he goes on to make war against her. What does the Bible say? Offspring or her seed. Because she can't catch her, the woman, the nation of Israel, the dragon is going to make war against her offspring. Now, for some very strong exegetical reasons, I believe that this offspring that they are talking about, or John is talking about, is the 1,44,000 Jews who are sealed in chapter 7, who have gone out around the world to preach the gospel, to preach about Christ. So Satan goes after them because he can't go after Israel now, who has gone to a place of safety to be nourished by God himself. And during the last three and a half years, Satan goes after these witnesses who have been sealed for Christ. Now look at verse 17, the last part of verse 17. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So where is the dragon standing? Where is Satan standing? On the sand of the sea. Listen please, this is the point of chapter 12. The future struggle that God and Satan are going to have in history, in the tribulation period, and in the last few years before the return of Christ, the struggle, the future struggle that God and Satan are going to have is just the climax of a conflict that's been happening ever since the fall of Satan. Did you hear that? 
the future struggle in the tribulation, the great tribulation period between God and Satan that's going to happen is just the climax of what's been happening ever since the fall of Satan. And that's the picture, the entire picture that chapter 12 portrays for us. So from the time that Satan fell from heaven and has been cast down to the earth along with the angels that followed him, he's been in a state of rebellion against God, against the Messiah, trying to destroy the nation that produces the Messiah. And he will, he will muster up all of his energies to do that once again before the Lord Jesus Christ himself comes up to set up the kingdom on earth, the millennial kingdom. So it is giving us an entire panoramic view of what happened from the initial rebellion to the final rebellion when he is going to be destroyed. Now, the final rebellion that we are talking about here, that is pictorially given to us in chapter 12, takes up more concrete terms in chapter 13. How is Satan going to act? Satan is going to act through two of his ambassadors in chapter 13. The first ambassador or envoy is the first beast who comes out of the sea. The second one is the beast who comes out of the earth. So that's the connection between chapters 12 and 13 and we'll move forward very quickly. Okay, we look at chapter 13. Uh, look at chapter 13, please. Look at verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. And again, this is the best beast I could get. Uh, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. Now, in the thought of the ancient Near East, in the thought of the ancient Near East, the sea represents everything that is evil, everything that is filthy and evil and anti-God. Okay? So when John says he is coming out of the sea, he indirectly means he is coming out of the bottom pit, the abyss. That's what he means here. So he saw a beast coming out of the sea, and how many horns did he have? Ten horns. How many heads did he have? Seven. And how many diadems did he have? Ten diadems. And what else did he have? He had blasphemous names on his heads. Now hear me please. When you compare this with the dragon, you see that it has a close affinity with the dragon of chapter 12. Who is? Who is the dragon of chapter 12? Satan. Okay. So the beast, ha Satan had seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems on his heads. We said that the seven heads represent seven consecutive world empires, right? And the ten horns represent ten kingdoms of the seventh empire. Okay. And the seven diadems, we don't have to take that series, that's fine, okay. Uh, let's look at the ten horns here, and seven heads and ten diadems. Now look at this, the seven heads remain the same, the ten horns remain the same, but seven diadems have become ten diadems. The reason is, in, this, in Satan's case, the seven diadems are on seven heads. In the beast's case, the ten diadems are on the ten horns. Okay, that's, that's the difference. But there's a close affinity between the two and look at what's happening here. In Satan's case, the heads are mentioned before the horns and in the beast's case, the horns are mentioned before the heads, which means the horns take prominence in the case of the beast. The horns have prominence in the case of the beast. In the scripture, horns are a symbol of power. Throughout scripture, Horns are a symbol of power. Now, remember, I talked to you about the seven heads being 
seven consecutive world empires, right? Now, here are the seven consecutive world empires. Look at this. There's Egypt, there's Assyria, after that came Babylon, after that came Medo-Persia, then came Greece, then came Rome. By the time John was writing the book of Revelation, which empire was running its course? Rome. In fact, the Roman Emperor Domitian banished him to the Isle of Patmos. That's where he was on the Lord's Day. He was writing the book of Revelation. There is going to be a future world regime that's going to come. That's yet future to us. That will consist of 10 world kingdoms. 10 kingdoms. Okay, 10 kingdoms will give rise to a future world regime. And we can positively say that these 10 kingdoms and the future world regime will be somehow and in some way connected to the old Roman Empire. And I would go one step further very carefully and say, and this can be exegetically proven, that the future regime will be territorially also connected to the old Roman Empire. And that's probably one of the reasons why you know, most Bible teachers say it's a confederation of 10 European nations, but all of that is speculation, and speculation does not help much in biblical prophecy, right? But for the moment, let's just say that there's going to be 10 kingdoms in the future that will be part of a future world regime. And the beast is the one who's going to head that. The beast is the one who is going to head that. Okay? So the future regime is represented by... Ten simultaneous kingdoms, which is the ten horns. And uh, the beast will enjoy supremacy over these ten kingdoms. And they will be his sub-rulers. This matches with what we see in Daniel chapter 7 as well. Clear so far? Can we move forward? Okay, great. The beast also has blasphemous names on his heads, right? He has blasphemous names on his heads. Now, for us to understand this, we'll have to go back to some of the Roman empires, emperors. Now... The Roman emperors, right from the time of Augustus, okay, took magnificent names upon themselves, almost meaning that they are gods, which was a blasphemy against God. Okay? The Roman emperors of the past took magnificent, great names, glorious names for themselves, even in the letters that they sent out to the people, showing that they themselves are divine and gods. This is a blasphemy against God. Now, the future empire and its ruler is going to blaspheme God in a much greater way than the Roman emperors of the past have ever done in history. Is that clear? Right? The Roman emperors give a small clue and a preview of what that blasphemy could be, that the future ruler who's going to head the seventh world empire is going to do as a blasphemy against God himself. Second Thessalonians 2, go back and read it. You will see what kind of a blasphemy that is. Okay? Now, we've been talking about this beast a lot. Who is this beast? The beast must be a personal figure. It is not the internet or it is not some abstraction of evil. The beast must be a personal figure as well as the head of an empire. It is a satanic force that is operating in the seventh empire that is personified in a vile nefarious, evil-minded individual. A satanic power operating in the seventh future empire, the world empire, is personified in one individual who heads it. So the final world empire will be managed by or ruled by a satanically empowered individual who is a counterfeit Christ or who is the Antichrist. 
right? So the Antichrist is the one who will rule the future world empire, the seventh empire that we're talking about. That'll consist of seven, sorry, ten kingdoms, ten sub-rulers that he will have authority over. Okay, so look at, the, look at the chapter now. This Antichrist, the first beast, he dies and then he returns to life as well. It is, it is a deceptive attempt to parallel the death and the resurrection of Christ himself. And he has been given authority over everyone whose name has not been written in the Lamb's book of life. And they all worship the beast. That is the Antichrist. And then there's a second beast that is coming out of the earth. The first beast came out of the sea. There's a second beast coming out of the earth. What happens to him? He is strong too. He has two horns. Uh, but the fact of the matter is he's not as strong as the first beast. He promotes the worship of the first beast. And for him to achieve his aim, he's given the power to perform many miracles. And he will force men to identify with the first beast, the Antichrist, by having them take the mark of the beast, which is 666. No trade happens without that. You can't buy stuff without that. So that's the mark of the beast that this second beast is promoting. And because he is prophesying for the first beast, he is rightly called the false prophet. He is rightly called the false prophet. So the first beast of chapter 13 is the Antichrist. The second beast is the false prophet who promotes the worship of the first beast, the Antichrist. So look at chapters 12 and 13. Chapter 12 is talking about the war that's been happening between God and Satan ever since the fall of Satan and how it's going to show up in the end time period before the Messiah comes and establishes the kingdom. And just before the Messiah comes and establishes the kingdom, what happens between God and Satan is mentioned in chapter 13. The Antichrist comes. God is going to use the Antichrist. Sorry, Satan is going to use the Antichrist. Satan is going to use the false prophet as well to turn against God and his people and persecute them and the Messiah is going to come and rescue them later on. We come back to chapter 14. Chapter 14 is anticipatory. Okay, It is anticipated. It's not happened yet. It is anticipating what's going to happen. It is a picture of the millennium that's going to come. If you look at the first five verses, they feature the lamb in the place of the beast of chapter 13. Which means the lamb in the future is going to replace the beast. And the lamb's followers have his mark and the mark of his father on them as opposed to the beast followers having the mark of the beast. And then you have a divinely controlled Mount Zion in the place of pagan controlled earth or Babylon. So it is an anticipatory chapter that's going to talk about what's happening in the millennial kingdom. The rest of the chapter is also anticipatory in the sense that it talks about the devastations and the blessings that are going to come in the rest of the chapters in the book of Revelation. Chapter 15 now. There is a scene in heaven that precedes the bowls because the bowls are given in chapter 16. And chapter 15 talks about the seven plagues of God and they will finish the wrath of God. Okay, The seven plagues are the seven bowls that are going to come in chapter 16. Now look at chapter 16. The bowl judgments are given very swiftly without any interruption. The first bowl produces agonizing sores in verse 2. The second bowl causes the sea life to perish. The third bowl turns all fresh water into blood. 
The fourth bowl causes the sun to scorch man. And as is typical of man, men do not repent but blaspheme God still. In spite of all that's happening, in spite of all the suffering that's gonna, that is coming upon man because of the wrath of God, men recognize their wickedness and yet do not repent. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth bowl, it brings darkness over the entire kingdom of the beast, which shows his weakness before God. The beast is nothing before God, but men still blaspheme. Then you have the sixth bowl that dries up the river Euphrates. Now, I want to spend two minutes on this. Listen to me carefully, please. Where is the river Euphrates? It's here, that black thing that is there. It's in Iraq. It goes all the way up as well, but I just mentioned this part for a reason. Jerusalem is here. And Euphrates is here. Actually, this river has been an impediment for armies to come into Jerusalem from the east. We see this in biblical history as well. right? But here is Euphrates. And when the sixth bowl is poured out, it dries up the river Euphrates. There is no immediate intervention there, but it simply looks forward to and prepares for a time of Armageddon when armies from the east come to Jerusalem for the final great conflict. Okay? So that we see later in chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, but it's just preparatory. It's just giving an overview of what's going to happen in chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, where here uh, it looks forward to the final war of Armageddon because the river has dried up. Armies from the east, most probably oriental people, you know, they come and they would participate in the final great conflict that's going to happen, which is, which is the Armageddon. So this is the armies of the world against the armies of the great king who's going to come from heaven with his armies. The final battle, which is the Armageddon. Now look at verse 15, please. In the midst of all that's happening, grace is offered again. There's a warning for preparedness that he's coming. Look at the grace of God. You know, In the midst of all of this, Grace is offered, mercy is offered, but men do not repent. And the seventh bowl is then poured out. The seventh bowl is then poured out. It is causing great cosmic upheavals. There is a proclamation saying it is done because it has exhausted the wrath of God that, is, that had to be poured out on earth. There's a destruction of Babylon, uh, the shift of the earth, and hail from heaven. Again, there's an overview of the destruction of Babylon that we're going to see in chapters 17 and 18. Now hear me please, I'll spend five minutes on Babylon and then we'll move quickly forward and finish the rest of the chapters in, in about five minutes. This chapter, chapter 16, as a seventh bowl is poured out, it mentions about Babylon's drinking the wrath of God, right? Babylon is drinking the wrath of God. Now that is yet to come. This is just a preview of what's going to happen. The language here indicates the enormity of punishment that is going to come upon Babylon. There are various stages in the fall of Babylon. In chapter 17, there's a stage 1 of the fall of Babylon. In chapter 18, there's a stage 2 of the fall of Babylon. And in chapter 19 is the ultimate collapse of Babylon when the Messiah will come and establish his own millennial reign. Okay, So there are stages 
in the fall of Babylon. Chapter 17, the first stage. Chapter 18, the second stage. Chapter 19, when the Messiah comes, is the final collapse of Babylon. So I believe the account of the seventh bowl starts right here in chapter 16 and goes all the way till chapter 22 and verse 5. The seventh bowl, what's happening there, starts here and goes all the way till chapter 22 and verse 5. But in spite of all that's happening, once again, the response from the earth dwellers is one of blasphemy. They do not repent. Okay. All right. Okay. We'll come here to chapter 17, verses 1 through 19 and verse 10. It's one major unit just before the return of Christ. Chapter 17, verse 1 through chapter 19, verse 10. It is an expansion, an explanation of the seventh bowl judgment. That's what I said, right? Now, in chapter 14, if you remember, an angel proclaimed the doom of Babylon in chapter 14. And this bowl has also given an introductory overview of how it's going to fall. But the Bible or the book of Revelation hasn't told us how bad the city of Babylon is, what kind of an evil empire it is, and how God is going to punish it, which is seen in chapter 17 and chapters 18. So that's what chapter 17 and 18 are going to talk about. The evil of Babylon, what was happening in Babylon, what is Babylon, the mystery of it all, and how God is going to fell it, God is going to destroy it. Okay? Now, chapter 17, I want two minutes of your time, please, please listen very carefully. This is a mystery and we need to understand this. Chapter 17 focuses on religious Babylon. Chapter 18 focuses on political Babylon, also called commercial Babylon. Chapter 17 on religious Babylon. Chapter 18 on political Babylon. These are two aspects of the same thing. Babylon, it's a mystery. Now, chapter 17 is talking about the religious aspect of Babylon. It's an anti-God religious system. It's a system that's been there from the beginning. It's a system that is continuing. It's a system that is going to be epitomized in the kingdom of the Antichrist in the future as well. So Babylon is a symbol of evil. It reaches right back to the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 10. And it also extends to the future under the regime of the Antichrist. The evil is deeper and much more entrenched than what we can think or imagine. So in Babylon, we see a culture of depravity. It is depraved. It is evil. And the whole picture of Babylon is in contrast to the new Jerusalem that is coming in chapter 21. It is a depraved culture. It is an immoral culture. And that's the way the city has been. And the mystery of Babylon first appears to us in the book of Genesis, like I mentioned. But we don't have time to go all the way back to Genesis, so let me take you to the time of the kings. Now listen very carefully, please. This is the time of the kings of Judah. And in the biblical narrative, there is a time when the kings of Judah fell into deep idolatry. Right? They fell into deep idolatry, and when this happened, there were prophecies that God is going to chop off the tree of David and cut off the line of David. But because of his Davidic covenant, he says a stump is going to remain. Out of it will come out a shoot in the future, 
who is the Messiah. But for the moment, because of the deep idolatry of the kings of Judah, the tree is going to be cut off. Now, this is a house or a dynasty of whom it was said, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. But this dynasty, this house fell into idolatry. And when they fell into idolatry, Babylon appeared clearly on the scene. Babylon appears on the scene and they come and they take them into exile. But it's a culture that is entrenched in evil. The religion is anti-God. It persecutes the saints. It's drunk on the blood of the saints. And Daniel sees in his vision, after Babylon comes Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Rome, and then the final kingdom, isn't it? Now, although these are different kingdoms, common to all of that is one strand that is running. And that is an evil religion that is going through all of these kingdoms. It's a system of religion that is anti-God. It is a system of religion that is opposed to God and his people, the religious Babylon, mystery Babylon. So this is Babylon that we see in chapter 7. It's been like that from the beginning. It is sexually immoral, it is, uh, it is greedy, it is covetous, and its hatred for God and its saints is clearly seen throughout uh, its lifetime. And all of a sudden, this religious Babylon comes to an end when the beast and his ten kings decide that it is not going to be of any purpose to them anymore. So the Antichrist and the ten kings, his ten kings under him, they go and destroy the religious Babylon. Now remember, Jesus said that a kingdom divided against itself cannot it cannot stand. This is the beginning of the crumbling of the kingdom of Antichrist because he himself is rising, about, rising up against his own system and he is destroying religious Babylon. So that's what we see in chapter 17. That's the religious Babylon that's going to be destroyed. Then you have the political Babylon in chapter 18. We see the politics of it. It is dangerous to everybody who is involved in its politics because it is because of this politics of Babylon that has given rise to one man who's positioned himself as anti-God. He is the Antichrist. He's, he's, it's given rise to one man that is the Antichrist. That's the politics of Babylon. And when God comes back, he will destroy the political Babylon as well. So the religious Babylon and the commercial or the political Babylon is destroyed because it doesn't have an abiding future. Then we come to chapter 19. Chapter 19 has two main segments to it. Verses 1 through 10 is the first segment. There are songs prompted by the fall of Babylon. And then you have verses 11 through 21. You have the sequence of events surrounding the coming of the Messiah, the Lord's return to the earth. So the first four songs in verses 1 through 5, they look backward to the judgment of Babylon and the song in verses 6 through 8, it looks forward to the marriage of the Lamb. Okay, so these are all songs. Now we've talked about Babylon in chapter 17 and 18, but in chapter 21, contrasting it is New Jerusalem. It's a contrast to Babylon. We see New Jerusalem. But in order for us to get from Babylon to New Jerusalem, Christ must come. Christ must return and set up his kingdom. No human power on earth is able to bring the kingdom of God in its fullness. Christ must come. He will come and he will set up his kingdom. And that's his promise. And when he comes, 
he will destroy the greatest opposition of power that the world has ever seen, personified in the Antichrist. And that's what is going to happen. And quickly, look at how it's going to pan out, verses 11 through 16 of chapter 19. Then I saw the heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Look, even he has diadems, but these are the real ones. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with, with which uh, to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread down the winepress of fury of the wrath of God of the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now he comes to set up the kingdom. The last bit of it. Chapter 19 verse 11 all the way till chapter 21 verse 8 has eight visions. I say that because all of them begin with, and I saw, and I saw. It's eight times. So there are eight visions given to, Dan, uh, to, to uh, John. The first one is the return of Christ. The second one is the invitation to the birds of prey to come and eat the flesh there. The third one is the defeat of the beast. That's the Antichrist. The fourth one is the binding of Satan for a thousand years. The fifth one is the millennial reign and the final defeat of Satan. The great white throne after the millennial reign and the judgment of those who had not written, whose names had not written in the book of life. And then you have the eternal state coming, the new heaven and the new earth. This is the conclusion and climax of all things for the righteous. So that's how the book of Revelation ends. He is coming. He is coming. He is coming. Three times over in the conclusion of the epilogue, it says, I'm coming. I'm coming. And I'm coming. Very quickly, in the next two minutes, applications, please. Number one, be ready to reign with Christ forever and ever. Be ready to reign with Christ forever and ever. Look at chapter 22, verse 5, the second part of it, only that. And they shall reign forever and ever. Who are these? It's us, the saints. We humans, because of sin, lost our capacity and capability to reign over God's creation, and now in the new creation, because of deep fellowship with him in his presence, we will reign with him forever and ever. There is going to be no interruption or break at all. And what do we have in this beautiful, eternal, blessed city of New Jerusalem? Number one, we have a perfect renewal. There's going to be no more curse. Paradise is regained. We have a perfect government because we have the very throne of God and the Lamb sitting on it. We have a perfect subordination. We all as servants will serve him. We have a perfect transformation. All the saints shall be like him and shall see him face to face. We have a perfect identification. We have his name on our foreheads. We have a perfect illumination because he himself shall illumine us. And we have a perfect exaltation. We shall reign forever and ever with him. So here are seven perfect conditions given to us in one absolutely perfect state called the New Jerusalem. And I want to say, hallelujah, what a savior we have. Lastly, for the moment, take comfort in the fact 
of the return of Jesus. Yes, we have a great glorious future, but we have to go through some suffering and pain that the Bible talks about. For the moment, take comfort in the fact of the return of Jesus. My dear brothers and sisters, if we say the times are bad now, the Bible's got news for us, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. There'll be wars, rumors of wars, uh, false Christ, persecution, lawlessness, all of that, that's going to increase in the time to come. However, you and I don't need to be discouraged or surprised by any of these. And I want to say this towards the end. It doesn't matter how dreary things are. It doesn't matter how discouraging things will get. It doesn't matter who rises to power. It doesn't matter which government comes to power. It doesn't matter how much persecution you and I may have to endure. Jesus is coming, and when he comes, he will change everything. Jesus is coming, and when he comes, he will change everything. That's the message of the book of Revelation. And I know it's tough. It's been tough here to stand up and preach as well about this particular book in about 45 to 50 minutes, but uh, you've, been, you've been great. Thank you so much for your patience. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for giving us these heavenly, beautiful truths. Although it's tough for us to understand by your grace and by the enlightenment, illumination given to us by your spirit, we're able to understand and appreciate the fact that you're sovereign over history. And before you come back, in the person of your son to establish your kingdom. We know that the world is going to go through an unprecedented time of trouble and sorrow. But thank you for the hope that you've given us, the blessed hope that you will take us away to be with you in heaven, O oh Lord. And we pray that as we approach this time, there'll be many who would look to you, repent of their sin and trust in the saving righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ and come to know you, O Lord, so that they can escape this judgment that is coming upon all the earth dwellers. We pray, O Lord, that you would give us the grace and the strength to go through these times with the hope that there is a new Jerusalem awaiting us that is coming for us dressed like a bride from heaven. And we will reign with you forever and ever. Thank you for the hope, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm.